Thank you so much for listening to DNVR Biz. For the 95% of you that are listening to this through a mobile device, I would really appreciate it if you opened up that app right now and gave this a five-star review. It's the only way for this podcast to become more visible and reach more people. Thanks again. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of DNVR Biz. I'm your host, Brandon Spano. Today, we have on Brad Bickerton. Brad is the CEO and founder of Delta Awesome. He does an amazing job at this company. You know, they bring in different kinds of startups and different kinds of founding teams. They do executive coaching. He helps solve all kinds of different problems, uh, him and his partner. And they do all kinds of different deal structures for these startups. You know, I mean, outside of fund managers that are actively investing in companies, I don't know anyone else who's more connected to the startup scene and more connected to founders, especially startup founders than Brad. So this should be a really great interview. He helped me out a lot early on in my career. And, you know, he's a really, he's just a super knowledgeable guy. He's really passionate about this. So should be a fantastic interview. Let's jump now to the interview with Brad Bickerton. Shall bring disaster to evil factors. Demonic chapters shall be captured by kings through the storms of days after. And to the earth from the sun through triple darkness to blast you with a force that can't be compared to any firepower. Hey, Brad, thanks for the time today, man. Really appreciate it. Hey, Brandon, it's really good to see you again. And I'm excited to talk about some new stuff and some old stuff. What's yeah. up? Yeah, yeah, man. You know, you're, you always bring the same level of energy. You've always been a really energetic guy and uh i can i can really appreciate that let's talk about delta awesome though right now because this was really the perfect situation for you you've been running this for a couple years now and you know the thing about you is whether it is i mean i've seen it everywhere whether i go to a pitch whether i go to you know leads the business school at cu an investor in this company and uh Mm -hmm. You know, Brad is the the offspring of that school. You know, I got you. I got you into there to the DCBF. Actually, you did. You did get me into there. Yeah, and we won that. <laughs> yeah, you did. You you won. Uh, you you're the big winner. <laughs> we were startup of the year there. Anyway, uh, you know, you're always helping people. And that's what you do. Uh, early early on, when I was a lost little duckling, you helped me out a lot. You're a great sounding board. You give great advice. And now with Delta Awesome, you're in a position where you know, advice, corporate structure, scaling, what the next level looks like is, is actually your business. And it works really well for you. And, and from what I can tell you, you've done a great job. So tell me about Delta Awesome, why you started it. And I know I stole a little bit of your thunder there explaining it, but I'd love to, love to hear your, your why and your vision on this. So there's two parts to the origin story. So I'll tell you the, the old part quick, because that was the stutter start, you failed. And then the new part, which is the, the success engine you're seeing now. So the old part was, uh, I started a product of my family's company in my mid twenties and it was successful. And being, being the foolhardy entrepreneur I am, I got tired. So I ran away to law school. And then because I'm dyslexic, I joined business school. So I'm doing this joint JD MBA <laughs> or yeah. It's like, it's, it's the classic thing that we see with founder CEOs and multi-time people. And you're like this too. We're and then people. I did this and then I did this and then I did this and then I did this. 
that's common to us and that's common to me. It's not as common in the regular wide world, which, which is the thank God. So I was sitting down after four years of grad school, seven years of my family's company, all this stuff. And I said, well, what are the things I've learned? What are just the couple things I've learned? And I ended up writing out this list of a hundred things I've learned and we'll get into that later. And then I said, okay, that's cool. I'm about to graduate. Here's a hundred things I've learned. What do I want to, what do I want to do next? And they came with this concept. They said, why do startups fail? Here's a venture capitalist gives them a half million bucks or 5 million bucks. Doesn't matter. 90% of them fail. And I thought, what if we just took really smart, experienced people and we put them in short periods of time right next to those founder operators, those founder CEOs? What if I'm just a little bird on Brandon Spanish's shoulder and saying, hey, bud, don't do this. It never works. This other thing, really creative. I don't know if it works or not. Let's find out if it works. And this last thing, yeah, that works every time. So that was my initial idea. And so I wrote this email to some and, and, Colorado. Just so we're all on the same page, that thing that works every time is the, is the smallest net return. Just so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, minimum viable dose, smallest net return, yeah. keep the end in mind, sharpen the saw, whatever yeah. it is. That's good. I like that. Smallest net return. Yeah. Keep the wolf from the door. So to finish up, the, the, the original version of this was I sat down that day before my last final and I wrote out this thesis in an email to some VCs and, and people that I knew. And there was only one problem with that business, that model. I didn't send the email. So that was my first failure at what was Delta Awesome. And then over the years, I did some things and I had an exit. I was putting things together as being an angel investor and sometimes I'd jump in as interim CEO. And that's when we met. And when one of those started just to, to pail out, I met this woman named Hannah Drain, Hannah Drain Taylor. And she said, Brad, what are you doing next? And I said, you know, I have had this obsessive hobby with helping people for five years. I just get so sick and frustrated with people failing for normal, predictable reasons or not succeeding because they just didn't know something or they didn't hear something or didn't have a network. So she and I cobbled together what we called the primary advisor program. And that started in 2018. And now here we are, 2020, and we've got three different programs. We're working on two more, uh, and we're rocking and rolling. So, you don't, so one of the things that I believe, I, 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 maybe you don't, maybe you do, it, it would seem to me like believing this may hurt your sales funnel. But um, in, in, you know, in, unless maybe you guys have to do a lot of due diligence to find out what companies are worth you know, grinding on. But yeah, I believe that a lot of these companies don't work because I think that maybe not 90, you know, 90% of the companies fail. Maybe not all 90% are this case, but a high percentage, I think, are founders that are in the wrong business or they're in the wrong industry. And, you know, to me, what we see a ton of in the more founders that you deal with and the more of the startup world that you're involved in, what you see is a lot of people that are creating companies just to create a company just That's exactly right 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 just to say i have an idea let's see if this one works that did okay i have another idea let's see if this one works to go and be the next ceo the next startup founder the next acquisition whatever instead of saying hey this is a problem and i'm gonna go solve this it's yeah. like it's like looking for problems. It's like, and, and listen, I know some people are really successful at it, you know, going to Reddit and reverse engineering the, you know, problems that they're seeing, uh, you know, people talk about on Reddit and create businesses for them. So that's not really my style, you know, but because to me, when I see really successful people, what I see is I'm, 
people who have an, a vast understanding of something and then and then try to improve it and then as they learn more and more and more and they get bigger they start taking more risks and because they understand the luck profile changes sure. um, and 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 now they can start leveraging you know uh, more capital and and you grow something really big i mean i think amazon is like a perfect example of this that starts out solving the book problem and then it well, just they didn't start solving the book problem. Actually, we use the Amazon a lot. They didn't start out solving the book problem because they knew if they went and solved the book problem, they've got Borders and Barnes and Noble. Now, some people may not remember some of those brands, but back in the late '90s, they dominated it. You know, John Grisham comes out with a new the new book. What is Amazon going to do against it? They started out in the rare book problem, mm. out of print. And that's how they got their tribe or their thousand true fans. Those people who fell in love with them, love they that. respected them. They said, aha, okay, you guys aren't perfect. This is my minimum viable product through minimum lovable. And then they said, okay, who else is going to love this product? Even though it's still in its nascent stages. So we went from these books, rare, you can only get them here, but you love who we are and how we do it. Hey, can we also sell you John Grisham? Yeah. Hey, would you tell your husband or wife or friend or whatever about this? We also sell John Grisham. We've got a better UI UX. So just, just remember, they started with what we call a tribes and platforms methodology. So I, I want to level set a little bit because you're right. It doesn't hurt our sales pipeline at all. In fact, one of our core values is we never charge a company anything that would materially hurt their chances, which basically subtracts all companies. That's just somebody with an idea. Because if you pay me and I give you some interesting ideas and whatever, and you pay one of our advisors and I said, you know what, that materially hurts your chances of success. And that's against our core values. But I can give you some free advice because I love you and I care. So I want to take it back two more steps. The first is a lot of this is about taking your obsessive hobby and turning it into a profession. I love that. So to me, I mean, that's another thing. So like with us, we, I was in the industry on the traditional side. I right. noticed a bunch of problems with it and a bunch of opportunities with it. And I created a business to solve those problems and exactly. to expand inside of those opportunities. And it just so happened to be right at the beginning of a paradigm shift. And we just went all in on the other side of the paradigm, you know? And so some of it's timing, which is another thing that founders get wrong. Hugely um, important thing is important. I did this at the wrong time, right? put it on the shelf or give up on it and take the lessons learned. Right. So we often talk about loving your problems or having an obsession, obsession, about your problem, not about your product. Product is about passion. Service is about passion, right? I love this thing. It's kind of neat. It's fun. It's interesting. But you want your product to be something that no one can stop you from thinking about and making better and working on it. And that's, and again, you meet a lot of product people who are obsessed with making sure the color's right and the size is right and the pricing model's right. So no, that's not, you got to be obsessed with solving the problem. So because I said that, I now have to tell you what problem I'm obsessed with. And I'm obsessed with startups failing for stupid reasons. Now that manifests in a lot of ways, but you were talking about, hey, should this person even be in this industry? Should they be part of it? Should they be what? You know what? If 90% fail, 30 to 50% of it should have failed for whatever set of reasons. Right, totally, totally. My job is to level up that 30 or 40% that shouldn't have failed. Yeah, they had co-founder conflict. They didn't understand financing. They got that, whatever it was. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Are, are, are most successful founders product people, would you say? No, no. So successful founders, an interesting thing, we have, we have a thing we call the, the, the CEO journey. 
So we focus more on CEOs, sometimes other parts of the founding team, but rarely on the product or CTO side. So here's, here's the fundamental thing. It's a little hard to say. I decided that a while ago, look, what's the ultimate goal of every startup? And I tried to find a universal. And I came across this and see if you like it. What if the ultimate goal of every startup was simply no longer be a startup? What if it was that? And it's kind of fun. And I took that out of an article I read where somebody was talking about, yeah, we've got this cool startup in our portfolio and there's a thousand employees. Like what startup has a thousand employees? It's crazy talk. So now that gets you on this train a little bit, we have five stages of a startup from early to middle to late. And it's uh, ideation and research, launch and commit, good luck wasteland, young real business, ready for enterprise sales. And we really focus on those models. And what we do is we say, look, if you're in ideation and research phase, that's wonderful. Be there, do it. We all started there. But like, know that like a lot of your things, your job is to have a good enough idea to, to launch it and commit to it. And then your job is to suffer the good luck wasteland of figuring yourselves out. And then your job is to figure out how to be a young, real business. And only then do you go after enterprise sales. And only then, then are you a real company. So we now have this modeling where we go through it. So these companies that should fail, we really hope they fail in the first two phases, giving people enough energy and knowledge and information to come back and have another at bat. What we hate is when someone fails at the later stages, they're bankrupt, they're exhausted, their relationships are blown, and they have no more network. Yeah, you're smiling at me, but you know people who've gone <laughs> through this. And so that's part of our integrity is to help people realize, look, you're not going to make it to the next phase, much less the final phases. Hey, let's pick up your marbles and go home. And I have that conversation. I mean, it's almost always late at night or early in the morning. I get a call from a founder and very frequently they're in a different time zone. And I can feel the pressure of them asking me for permission to shut down their endeavor. And that's a big honor that I get, but it's also incredible weight because most of you, including me, when you've got the not right idea, the not right product market fit, the not right team, you just push harder. If I keep pushing that rock up the hill harder, it's going to stay up there today. I just know it. And sometimes you just need an outside person that you care about or knows cares about you and just says, dude, if you walk away from this, we can get you a job. You'll spend 12 months healing your body, healing your relationships, filling up the tank, and you're going to come up with another idea. So I have no problem at all when people want to shut something down. I have a saying, um, and, and I talk about it actually in my last podcast, which was or two podcasts ago, which I did the four levels of luck, originally created by Mark Andreessen, and then kind of added to by Naval Ravikant, and Nivy yep. created uh, kind of a, an easier way to, and, and, and I leaned those up against, each one of those up against times, throughout this company's history where we encountered or were able to execute one of these levels of luck. And anyway, uh, one of them, the action luck, which is the second level, which is simply if you create enough actions, you're just amplifying your chances for luck. Uh, what I always say is if you're alive, you have a chance to get lucky, but if you're dead, you don't get a chance to get lucky. Right. I love it. So my, my brother and I have a phrase from what time I almost got hit on my bike. You learn a lot by almost dying. <laughs> but you learn nothing by actually dying. Right, right, right. So it's, it's almost identical. Hey, I want to flip the script a little bit if I can. It's your <laughs> podcast, can I? Can I ask you some questions? Yeah, yeah. I, I had Kim Carver on, our lead investor, actually, about a month ago, and the whole thing ended up being a counseling session to me. So 
hopefully, hopefully we don't recreate that. Well, just uh, just before we were, we were recording, you reminded me of the bad movie, the bad movie thing, the, the homework assignment I gave yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, well, um, the audience. You talk about your emotional state first and then what I told you to do? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, it, this was this was years ago, but I, but I had a, um, I uh, was, well, I mean, I, actually, I've talked about this time, actually, plenty of times on this podcast, the summer of 2018, we ran out of money. And I was in a really tough spot. And, you know, I had timed up this actually correctly with, you know, our money raising efforts. The problem was, is we didn't raise that summer. Yep. And, you know, the, the runway just got shorter and shorter. And eventually we ran oh, out. Yeah. And it was an extremely hard time. You essentially meet with each employee and you say, hey, uh, can you, you know, work for free if we pay you back? Uh, this is what we're at. You have a big team meeting. You try to get everybody on board and you're working, you know, all night and all day and you're because you're, you're trying to raise money while you're running it. And then you're and then you end up bringing on debt instead. And, and I mean, it's, it's just a whole climb. Well, during that time, I actually had some personal stuff that happened during that. So I mean, it was, it was a rough time. But during that time, I was talking to you and, and you, and this was like two o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday or something. And I was buried and you said, you should go see yep. a movie, but, but don't see a good one. <laughs> Pick the worst one there. Uh, I, I did you one better. I, I remember asking you where you were. Then I found the theater and I found the next showing and the movie I just happened to remember, I've done this before, but I have to remember with you, was the lowest rated movie that they had currently playing, The Dark Tower. And I told you to go see it and see if the sky's still hanging. Yeah. And, and I don't think you did it, but it was the concept of, you know, the world is crumbling around behind you and there's just no amount of Adonis-like strength that you could have to support this thing. But dude, you still got to breathe. You still got to live. You still got to have that moment of peace and get away. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I remember because you just, you, you're such a bubbly soul, but you couldn't take that as not just a joke, as an actual task at the moment. And now for years, you've been just laughing about it. And I'd, for, I'd forgotten that I told you to do that until 20 minutes ago. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, the, uh, the whole thing about, yeah, the whole moral of that is that you, you're supposed to get out of the movie theater there and realize that the world is just the way you found it, uh, just the way you left it when you walked in there. Uh, and that, you know. It's so hard to manifest perspective for ourselves. And so as we watch our CEOs go through different stages of their company, they need to reinvent themselves. And how do they gain that perspective on themselves? And, and most eventually have some, some form of meditation or, or mindfulness. Most eventually do some diet, exercise, lack of alcohol program. And those are good and we promote them and we help them with that. But there's nothing quite like just getting away. It just, it just works. And uh, so we call this red line, blue line, black line. It doesn't matter what, but the call I was on before this was with the entire executive staff of this company that's blowing up doing cool shit. And can I, can I swear on this? I guess I can, yeah, 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 I can yeah, figure yeah. it out. Yeah. And the CEO, he's actively working on leveling himself up because he and I have said, where is this company going? What is the gap in your skill set between now and there? He's doing really well now, but he's out of his league at where if we achieve our, our strategic plan, he's out of his league. Yeah. Which is, one fine. Which is fine. I mean, you're not supposed to grow. Uh, you know, people like, the, and, and, and hey, he's probably growing to become that guy at every level. And that's totally great yeah. too. 
he, that's great too. But at the end of the day, you know, our job is to grow these things and take them as far as we can. And there might be a time where someone else has to take over because you're not quite at that level yet. And that's fine too. Like people you should expect it. You're right, right. You should expect it. it. That's right. That's exactly right. Like I remember I was talking to Luke Beatty about, you know, he sold his company to Yahoo. Someone replaced him as CEO. And it was like, I, I talked to him like, was there any ego or anything like any, and he was like, dude, the guys who are, we were working, we went and worked at Yahoo. The people that were there were so much more qualified than everybody that it was like, it, 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 like, like the levels we were so far, yep. you, you know, that they were so many levels ahead that there was like, like you, there wasn't even time to, to wonder whether or not you could be like, like it didn't even make sense for you to be the guy. You know, we, we talk about this versus we, we talk about this when capacity rules, what is your capacity? And the first thing we always start saying is let's take two athletes, both with millions of Instagram followers, make millions of dollars, the best in their careers, incredibly well, you know, they're ripped and they're fun and they got good lives, identical in every way, except for one's a basketball player and one's a jockey. We're not going to switch their roles. My basketball player isn't going to start racing horses. My jockey's not going to start playing basketball. And it doesn't mean that you're lesser than in any capacity because they would both be equally bad fit for the other one. So we say this to start tempering the ego. It's not your ego. If you're a startup founder, let's give you the equity and the awards and the accolades and the founder status and the cash and then give you the permission to go start something new inside or out. But don't hold on to something when you've blown past your capacity. And so this is something every one of our CEOs, we do actively with them every quarter. What is, this, what is the right CEO for this company look like? Good. Can, do you have enough time, capacity, and energy to grow yourself to be ahead of the company? And when you don't, every time, every time there's ever been a CEO replacement in Delta Awesome's history, the CEO has said, let's start a CEO search. Now, of course, we're not investors. We can't force anybody out. But that's the kind of work that we do is we're ahead of that. Instead, if somebody's been underwater for six, 10 months, well, and have some you investor heard, has to come in and knock them out. I had Maddie on, on, on the podcast. And, Zola? Uh, yeah, Maddie Zola. And, yeah, uh, Maddie's a good guy. Did you, do you know another Natty? You know uh, I do know another Natty, but it's not a male. Okay. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. That would make sense. And he was talking about what, what, what was the IPO that came out of uh, Techstars? Uh, Which one? No, they've only had Syngrid, Syngrid. Syngrid, yeah, Jim Franklin, yeah. So he was talking about the Syngrid founding team, and he talked about how early on they pivoted into just being like department heads. And one went and ran product and one over here, and they just hired an executive team. And they all said it was the best experience, startup experience of their lives doing so that. So they were, they, were, they were smart and they were lucky. They found Jim Franklin. And think of Jim Franklin. I would wish that 10 years from now, I'm like Jim Franklin. Like he's, he's, he's a person, he's, he's a friend. He's, in fact, get him on this podcast to have him tell the story of Syngrid. But that's exactly it. They had a little product market fit. They knew none of them knew how to scale and grow a business. Jim's a brilliant guy. They brought him in and then he ran the business until the series, I think C people came in and said, Hey, let's move to California and hire a guy with Stanford MBA. That's a classic example. You can ask Jim about his, his thoughts on that. It's normal. And this is the problem. And this is something that I really try and solve is when founders are starting their perspective as an N of one, 
And the only other people who have an N of many, they've seen many things and know many different ways and don't have ego knows, are venture capitalists. And look, there's a place for venture capital in the world. I have some that I love, Natty, Julie. I have some that I disdain and dis dislike, and I won't say their names, but it's the rest of them. But the problem is, where do you get that multi-time founder experience? You to me, you and I have both founded things. We've founded things that were successful and that were failures. Where do we get that? And so I, I just said, the, and here's the second problem. If you have been a successful founder, people say you can only do two things for the rest of your life. Start something new from scratch or take over something from failing. And I said, wait a second. These are the people who know how to get out, of the, get out of the swamp the best, stay out of the swamp the best, give the best advice, be a counselor, but be intelligent, have network, all these things. How do I like magically give this to startups? And if I could, would it change the failure rate? And if it changes the failure rate, does that change the metrics you have to hit in order to be investable. And that's why, I know I just got on a rant, of course, I'm passionate about it. That's why I do this work. If I can change the failure rate, I can change who gets invested in, and I can change the failure rate just by bringing smart, good people to the table together. And that's what we do. So, and it's so, you, so, awesome. so how does the business model work? Do you guys take some equity from these companies? Do they pay you? What if they are like, Pre, I'm assuming most of these are pre-cash flow positive companies. Uh, some of them are maybe even pre-revenue companies. So, so how does that work? So there's two things to say about that. But remember, one of our core values is we can never charge anyone an amount that will hurt their company's chances of success. And we live by this core value. If money's running out, if money's running tight, we either have to give you a discount or exit, or we can't take you as a client. And this is a consistent thing with us. We don't, we don't hedge at all on this, but we also have cash flow needs, right? We are not a bunch of serially exited founders worth millions upon millions of dollars. Some of our founders who are really good at things have four companies and they have $200,000 to the name, all of which they made on Bitcoin. That doesn't mean they're not brilliant at helping you through your stages, but that person needs to have. So here's the second thing is in order for advice to be received, there has to be a willing buyer, willing seller. So we always negotiate cash and upside. Now, why do we do that? It's about your heart. You, Brandon, care about one of those things more than the other. Upside could be equity, could be revenue share, could be whatever. You care about them one more than, one more than the other. But we need to know you're willing to give us both. Because if you're willing to give us both, we now have a trust relationship through the contract. And we, we're really agnostic. If you want to give us a lot of upside, which is super speculative and risky and scary on our part, and very little cash, we're good, or the flip side. We basically just make it work. The majority of our clients come in on discounts because they, they meet us once and we say, cool, and then they meet us again, they say, cool, and we meet them the third time and we say, Brandon, I want you, this is our standard template, I want you to now give us the deal you can afford. And the we try to make it work. The, 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 the number one thing that I see, and this is something I've done early on, I think everybody who gets into the game and realizes how hard it is, you know, a lot of people do this, is trying to find other people that will A, raise money for you, or B, help you raise money. So how many of your companies are looking at you as, if we do this, these guys will help us raise money? And what does that conversation look like? So a huge portion of our companies start with, we'll pay you full price once we've raised money. And we, we don't roll our eyes, we take it seriously and legitimate, but at the same time, statistically, we know it's unlikely. So we try and create a backup plan on that. <laughs> and that's where most people come in. And we, frankly, we call them coffee and kind words clients. 
you would be a perfect example. When you and I were working together in 2017, you said, Brad, how can I pay you? I don't have any cash. I would have said, next time you go, buy the person coffee and say kind words about me, right? And that's worth me giving you this time. Second, I'm not going to make a lot of money off you while you're poor and stupid. But if I can help you be rich and smart, you'll probably honor me with that. And we found well, that to be a very long... Me, even if you can make me rich and stupid, you'd still... You know. I, I don't think stupid is not a category you fall into. You, you'll play the fool. I'll give that to you, but I've known you long enough. Yeah, it, it is fun. So, so what we do with the raising capital thing is we try and teach the person all the tools that usually get in the way. The first thing we teach people is that 80% of raising capital is administrative. Finding the person, following up with them, writing your newsletters, getting your legal, your, your sign, because you remember you think that it's about having a good pitch. You think that it's about selling a good investment opportunity. Those are both important, but those are only 20% of it. That 80% of, do I know enough people? Do I know the right people? Am I getting the right network and advice? Is my pitch together? Do I have the right raise for the right use? Am I doing the right terms on the right notes? That's all education. We provide that basically for anyone for free. Like a couple of times we charge 25 bucks to see if we could do it as a workshop and didn't really care. And there's some bad mouthing in, in that, that industry too, but but for us, no, it's, it's not about getting you to the raise. It's getting you to the place where you either know you can raise money or you know you can't. And if you know you can, you know how. And you've got a plan. Yeah. After that, almost all of them come back to us and say, we can't wait to hire you. Like, it's just, they just do. And then we have many-year relationships. Yeah, yeah. Do you end up at some point or, in, or are you at a point where you just end up kind of having you've got just kind of a lineup of companies that some are paying you cash, some of your equity portfolio, some of them you're, you have some sort of a strategic advisor role in, uh, you know, and, and you just kind of go down the list and you just kind of got a little bit of something going in, in a bunch of these. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's how it ends up manifesting because we know enough to be able to have multiple deals, you know, Venture capitalists need to do the same type of deal all the time. They, they want to do an equity deal and a C-Corp. Why? Because they got 25 to 30 investments per fund and they're on their third or fourth fund. How much are they going to remember why they did squirrely deal number 13 on, you know, in their second fund? So they can't be, be ad hoc. We can't because we have the people behind us who know what they're doing. And that's kind of fun and cool. But in the end, what we try and do with our model, what my envisioning was, is that the cash pays our operating costs so that our staff and our people and everything can be mature and grow. But there's really essentially no profit in this for our advisors or us, unless the companies produce an upside. And that is the finest point of alignment that I can create without starting a fund. If I started a fund, Andreessen probably does this. Andreessen probably has people who do something similar to me, but they lose alignment because everybody who's advising and helping their portfolio companies is still on the VC side. One of our, one of our clients raised 6 million bucks in nine months in three different versions. It was, it was, it was actually horrendous and awesome and everything in between. And I said, Hey, do you not need me anymore? Cause you're part of this huge multi-billion dollar fund. And I said, yeah, they've got a lot of people do what you do, Brad, but I can never really trust them. And I never really trust them until they say the same thing that you said. So, uh, you know, there's a value to this independence, but the cost of that value is you have to be able to give us some cash because that's the only way we can stay independent. Right. We're talking about low thousands of dollars here. We're not talking about like charging 
Like, didn't you have some guys who charged you like 15 or 20 grand a month plus two points, uh, whether they were successful or not? Wasn't that you? <laughs> really put me on the spot here. I mean, I've, I, taken some, I've taken some debt deals back in the day that were you did. brutal. Now, I, you know, I end up getting out of those jams. They, and, and I mean, I, I don't take any risks like that anymore. But back in the day, I mean, I, there was a couple times where it was, it was survival of the fittest. And, you know, I, I just looked at it. I just survived, you know, for whatever reason, I was really good at that. And sometimes it was just taking that deal and then saying, I got, I'll just figure out how to get out of this. And, you know, brutal, man. It, it turns out four or five months later, if you go back to them and say, Hey, I can give you your money back. And how about we put that interest into equity? A lot of times they'll say, okay, fine. You know? Uh, and then you ended up just, you know, financing your own, your own debt there through equities. I mean, I've done a million of different variations. <laughs> of things. That's a good deal. And, and this is the, this is the issue that I come up with is one of our phrases is entrepreneurship, early stage entrepreneurship is messy. What you just described in, incredible, smart. You're a hustler. You got it done. It's rare to find somebody who could squeeze, you know, the eye of that needle, but now you've got some messiness on it. You've got some dead equity, some, some guys who own some stuff. They don't care about you, whether you're successful or not. But if you're successful off of the many years of work you push forward later, they get a piece of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have a guy. We have invest. I mean, dude, I have guys that, uh, that were going to give me debt that, uh, that I agreed to give warrants to mm. that are going to be able to buy you know, a couple points of this company at an absurd price, no matter how big it gets. I mean, this thing could literally be as big as, well, it, it, it wouldn't be, you know, billion because they would probably be public by then and, and, and everything would have converted. But I mean, hypothetically, this thing could be worth a billion dollars and they could buy penny, a penny stock. Points, yeah. yeah. 30 grand or something, you know? So, but you know, I mean, you do, I, I used to feel bad about that stuff, but you know, you talk to people that have been through this stuff and, and everyone has stories like this. Everyone has, has done a round where they didn't get the valuation that whatever, but it's all about building something, growing it, taking it across the finish line. All of the other stuff between A and Z, it matters, but not as much as you think, because the A and Z are the ones that matter the absolute most. Once you prove that you can do that, then you're set because now you can do it forever. You know, now you can do it again. You're going to have the resources to do it again. Great people are going to want to work with you to build things. You're on the road, you know, but if you don't get that done, then it doesn't matter, man. So my thing is, so I'll agree and disagree with you. One of the problems we have is we discount the people who failed at JK and L, right? We forget about them. You don't forget if you're that guy, if you're that gal, but we forget about them. So statistically, they become irrelevant. But statistically, they still bring the industry down. What if we can get a higher percentage of people to Zed? I'm Canadian. How, how do we do that? And then the second thing, the people who are going to do it anyway, did it faster and easier. If, if I could give you what I know now, back when we met, I guarantee you'd be a year ahead of where you are now. And it would be easier, cleaner. I just guarantee it. And this isn't like rocket science stuff. It's just people throw these out, these platitudes out of do it this way, do it that way. Here's a blog post, here's a book. But you don't get that wisdom, that, that moral application of the knowledge right there on demand. Every founder that I have, we have a check-in every week. We usually do KPIs. We do executive coaching. We do strategic things. Every one of them, no matter what, it's an accountability call. 
which means you can't hide for six weeks on that one thing that's going wrong. I'm not gonna let you hide, I'm not a jerk. Right. And we see this, gosh, I can't tell you how often. Like a big one that, that we really come into is when there's a toxic, a toxic person in the, in the organization, whether it's a co-founder or an employee or whatever. And when we come into an organization a little bit later, we find this toxic person usually pretty quick. And the way you know them is you kind of, you get this sense that they're about 10% wrong, which then Hannah, my co-founder, she says, which means there's 90% of the iceberg that you don't see. And we come in and we ask like, what's with this person? And what do they do? And they're always kind of shining on why they should exist and why they need to be there and why no one else can do what they can do. And okay, that's fine. And what we find out is when we push on it a little bit, it comes obvious this person needs to go. And we're not saying they're bad people, though a lot of times they are, but we're not saying they're bad people. It's just go be fruitful somewhere else in life. But what we find is that we do this four to six weeks faster than if the founder was doing it themselves. Imagine if every single toxic personality you ever had was gone four to six weeks faster than if you did it yourself. How much would that speed up the whole company? Those are the kinds of things I obsess about. Obsess. I mean, so, sometimes, those are the highest, <laughs> so, some, sometimes those people perform at the highest level, though. You know, those t so it, it really complicates that. Um, people, you know, it's easy to say remove the most toxic people, but there's times where, many times where, those are the highest achievers, those are the highest performers. Sometimes they may even drive a large percentage of your revenue and you're scared to death to get rid of them. You know? well, that's a personality type that's called the brilliant jerk. And it's, it's actually been written about enough that you realize it will always create a cap on your growth. And so the homework assignment I give CEOs when they come across this and they come across a potential brilliant jerk, is I give them this homework assignment, I say, hey Spano, you got this brilliant jerk. I don't remember her name, I don't remember his name. But this is what I want you to do this weekend. I want you to write out how you would fire this person and what you would do the next day. I'm not saying do it. I just want you to have the plan. And what I find almost every time is if the CEO sits down and writes the plan, they're not as high functioning as they thought they were. They're not as hard to replace as they thought they were. And so maybe it takes three or four weeks to enact that plan, but they have the plan. It takes the emotional state because no employee gets to hold you hostage. It's fundamental for us. And a brilliant jerk, even if they're bringing in 80% of the revenue, they don't get to hold you hostage because it's not their company. It's not their vision they're trying to manifest. And I just can't say it any other way. They're a ball and chain around, around your leg. There are times when we can keep that person around for six months. Sometimes we give them executive coaching, which was really, sometimes it's a smoke screen. Sometimes it gets them out of it. But we highly focus on I guess disagreeing with, with what you just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, it's really interesting. I think the common denominator on all of these is once they're gone, everybody says, wow, that was such a big change. That was such, you know, that changed the culture here so much, you know. It's really crazy how everybody is affected by these toxic people, you know. And that's the 10%, 90% thing is the CEO, and it doesn't matter if you've got a team of five or a team of 50, you notice it and you're like, yeah, it's kind of a mild, weird thing that I don't know if I like about this person. But when they're gone, you realize I didn't see 90% of that iceberg. And we, were, we weren't prepared for that coming into this work. So let's uh, do a couple more and we'll, get to, we'll, we'll finish this thing up. Well, why don't, why, don't we talk, why don't you talk about, why don't you tell the audience, why don't you give just maybe a few misconceptions about raising money and and maybe a couple talking points that you just think are really important. So the very, very, very first thing that I teach people with raising money is know your audience. 
which is negotiations 101. The second thing is you are not your audience. It's fine. So who is your audience? They're investors, they're rich people, uh, you know, they're people looking for good deals, they're, they're vulture capitalists. You always have these misconceptions in your mind. And I say, look, the fundamental thing is they're people who are investors looking for a deal they can invest in. That is your audience. And every single sentence, line, document you send them should speak the language of why are you a compelling investment opportunity? And you're selling a compelling investment opportunity to people who buy compelling investment opportunities. Now, the reason you're compelling is your team, your product, your profitability. Do not talk about your team and your product and your profitability and your potential and changing the world. Don't talk about those things unless you can say, why does my team lead to this being a good investment opportunity? That's number one. Number two, so that's know your audience. Number two, for angel investing, there's three basic personality types. And I call them upside, downside, and team. Upside folks are you're chatting with them and they get super excited. Oh my God, Brandon Spano, he's going to take over the world. He's going to destroy major networks. He's going to be worth billions of dollars. And I'm going to be a part of that. My friends are going to like me and I'm going to get the new golfer. They're gamblers. They're wonderful people. Nothing wrong with them, but learn to identify. I am now talking to an upside investor. Speak their language. Second, downside. These are doctors, dentists, CPAs, lawyers. These are the people who say, send me your pro forma. And then two days later, they say, I found one Excel error and these two numbers I don't believe in. And usually when I'm teaching this, this is when someone laughs because downside people never invest, but they will talk to you about investing forever. And hey, Brandon, if we saw the video, I guarantee you, you're smiling because you realize there was some point in time where you talked to someone for like 10 or 20 hours over weeks and you realize later they were never going to, they were never going to invest. They're a downside person. Yeah. I honestly, if so, someone who puts too much weight into pro forma and projections, I think is a big red flag to me. I think the most accomplished and successful investors I know want a rough idea of what the market cap looks like, the market size, what the opportunities look like and why this thing can get big. Outside of that, they're identifying if this is the right time and this, and this is the right team. These are the right people to invest in, you know? And so I think if, if someone wants to talk about why we think we can do this in market two instead of this and how we can acquire this, like the real facts, and this is what the real people know is that those pro formas in, and, you know, all of these, these uh, projections that you create, they're all bullshit and it's all a guess and you have no choice but to make these guesses look as favorable as you can because you're raising money. It's a bad method. It's, it, it's the investors clearly signaling to you, I have a bad method of going forward and I'm never going to do a deal with you. And that's, that's up to them, right? They're, they're, they're adults and humans and they're probably accredited. So fine. Just don't waste your time with, yeah, here's another person in my list. I'm like, no, you know what? That's that person I checked off as downside. I'm now going to go spend my side, my time on fruitful people. And then the third personality type is team and team is just a loose thing of, I love you. I love what you're doing. It needs to exist in the world. So upside people will, will gamble on you. If they choose to gamble on you, keep them in your list. Downside people, get them off your list, keep moving on. And team people, hold on to them desperately because if they invest, you know why, and that's good. If they don't invest, you know why, and that's good. 
then the right. last thing I'll say is the, the, the scope of raising money. If people are listening to this, they're thinking, how does Brandon and this weird guy, Bickerton, he's got on here, help me do it. Let me first say, okay, 80% of it's admin. And the scale is not easy to hard. I've been involved in dozens and dozens of financings. The scale is impossible to raise money all the way down to regular hard. Regular hard is as easy as it gets. Brandon's about to do it again, and he needs two weeks of pep time because he's about to do something that's hard. But we can do things to help make it go from impossible to regular hard, like knowing your audience, like getting rid of people who are going to waste your time, like actually understanding what you're selling, which is an investment opportunity. Those all move you from the impossible category to the regular hard. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that. Let's go to the Thanks. final. Let's go to the final round here. It's just three questions, and we'll see how you do here. One of them is sports, which is good because I know I'm gonna I'm gonna get you way off guard here. So yeah, no, I got uh, nothing. For, first question: the most important book to you of all time? Okay, Ender's Game, and it's a book about a young smart guy who figures out putting a team together and getting them to work synonymously. It's also a great sci-fi book. And it's won every award since everything. And I've probably read or listened to it every year since my teenage years. So probably 20 or 30 times for business and, and entrepreneurship and CEO-iness, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Ah, oh, that's really crazy that I just saw The War of Art talked about uh, the other day. And that really, which I actually, I love The Art of War. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I thought that that was a great play on it, The War of Art. And... I, I'm really interested. That's on my list. So I'm, I'm it, excited to jump on this. I listen to that book. Anytime I need to engage in any kind of pathfinding, which is figuring out what's next for my company, if I ever hit a spot where I just can't do it or I'm stalling or I'm, you know, doing other things, whatever it is, I just immediately listen to that. And I'm dyslexic, so I listen to all the books. So that's the book I listen to. And I listen to it on a hike or whatever. And the muse always comes to me and I break through that moment. And uh, so that's why that one works for me. Um, so those are my books. Yeah, I love that. So is, is the war of art kind of just philosophy, um, just kind of an open-minded, you know, jot down of philosophy and beliefs? So it's, it's about a man who's a legitimate author. Stephen Pressfield's a legitimate author. And he wrote uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance, which became a movie. Um, and so he's been a movie author and another author. And one day he sat down and wrote, how do I approach being an author? And this, it, he writes it to be translated to anyone who's trying to create any endeavor, whether you're trying to be better at sports or quit drinking or start a company or write a book. And he talks about the dual sides of the muse, who's the angel on your shoulder, who's helping push you forward in this creative endeavor, and then resistance, which is everything else. And cool. so he's a good author, but it's also a framework. So it's somewhere between self-help and autobiographical, but it's not boring for anybody doing this stuff. Pick it up. You owe it to yourself to pick it up because if you're not sharpening the saw, you don't know what you're doing. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. The most underrated athlete of all time. Underrated athlete of all time. Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky is thought of as like one of the greatest athletes of any sport ever evolved. So I exactly. Underrated. <laughs> I'm Canadian. I'm going to pick a hockey player, though I've watched two hockey games in my life. Honestly, that, that wouldn't even be something uh, I could, could answer uh, outside of that.
that, that joking status. Uh, <laughs> I, I, the only sport I ever, ever paid attention to was cycling, and then they destroyed all, all faith I had in athletes. So, Well, you got you to cheat to win in cycling. Yeah, exactly. And I don't mind cheating in business because it's ethical cheating and it's bad cheating. But anyway, okay, I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> it's your, that's your wheelhouse. I call you and ask you that question. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I really enjoy cycling as well. I got a, a specialized road bike, you know, right, right when, actually as soon as gyms closed and I've been riding, I just tore my ACL last week, so I haven't been riding. But, uh, but prior to that, I was riding about 50 to 100 miles a week, every week. That's a lot, man. So, what I one thing I like about riding for me is it's a form of, of mindfulness meditation. I've been riding for 20 years. I'm not competitive. I'm not a good athlete. But I can go out and ride anytime I want. And I can't tell you how many times I've come off a ride, 45 minutes or three hours, and some conclusion about life is then totally. returned to me. I totally agree with that. I, I, I work out every morning. I, drive, I ride my bike to the gym, work out, ride back home. And I do it for that very reason. Like I'm, I'm so addicted to the mental things that happen while I'm exercising that I'm addicted to them, that I have to have them or I'm, I, I'm not the same person. So it's, it's a concept that I work with my CEOs on, which we call dual tasking. And I don't want to get too far into it. I know we're wrapping up, but multitasking is bullshit. Nobody does it well. You know, there, there's a couple times on this that I saw you taking a text message and then you'd kind of come back in and I could see your brain rewiring. You're good at it, but you're not as present when you're doing two things. Every study has said that. But dual tasking to me is defined as something where you can achieve two results. So for me, if I'm hiking and listening to the war of art, I can be fully present in both of those and that's now not two hours I had to spend, but one hour doing two things. Yeah. Very different than multitasking. Almost every high-functioning CEO I know over time develops dual tasking methods, exercise and meditation. You know, taking my kids to school and I don't know what, there was a guy who did that one. No, this guy, one guy bought a CrossFit gym and turned half of it into a gymnastics studio so he could work out with his daughters and, you know, be present. That's the whole other thing. Okay. What's the third? What's the third question? Because I want to get away from sports. <laughs> sports. First question is the space or business that you're most excited about in the near future. Yeah, um, the, the, it's one I'm heavily involved in right now. It's ancillary to 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 CBD and THC production. For those of you who don't know, CBD is is an anti-inflammatory. A lot of benefits to it, grown from hemp or cannabis, marijuana. THC is the thing that actually makes you loopy. But as those internationally start growing, the ancillary sell picks and shovels kind of concepts are starting to grow and mature. They're not only going to grow and mature, but they're also going to consolidate. I've been spending, I never thought I'd get involved in any cannabis THC stuff, and I really don't. But this ancillary to it, that's a place that's, it's unique to this time and something that I, I'm spending quite a bit of effort on. Yeah, that's cool. That is really cool. I mean, we have one of our partners is Strava Craft Coffee, and it is Andrew Amott essentially invented CBD coffee, actually right in Boulder. And I had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, but it's really amazing and it makes you feel amazing. So I'm a big CBD, this, 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 you know, I tore up my knee, as I was saying, I've been putting, I've been drinking CBD coffee. I've been putting CBD topical ointment on my knee. And then, you know, even though it's been really painful, uh, I have been taking 
I can't say I've been totally off the painkillers because there is some times where it was just a little much and I had to take one of those yeah. pills. But yeah. I've been doing a cannabis drink instead as often as I can. Um, now, that, yeah. one is, that one is THC, so you can get high from it. So I have got to be you know, somewhat careful. I'm not going to be on a, on a call or, uh, you know, heading the marketing meeting while I'm wasting. Yeah. But, um, but, but, you know, make no mistake. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, I have no problem saying I'd rather do that than the painkiller. And, and I try to as much as I can, honestly. And so as we start seeing this go through the levels, the state, states of diffusion of innovation, we're starting to, we've left early adopters in, uh, in CBD, and we're in the middle majority, which is about 33% of the market. And we're pushing into the, to, to, to the late majority. And, and for those who don't know Diffusion of Innovation, look it up or listen to Simon Sinek, start with why, top 10 TED Talk of all time. It's not a waste of your time, homework we often give. But what my problem was being in Boulder and having so many THC, cannabis, products, people, solutions, I could never, as somebody who's not in that genre, that's not my style, engage with them on how do we manifest a vision of your business? Not how do we just make more money and not how do we worship the plant? Both are fine. But that's not what I do. I don't worship products and problems and I don't just make money. I, I find these visions and we're starting to see this group of people who say, I want someone like Brandon to have less pain his whole life in an organic way. And that matters for all of society, but I can't get enough distillate over here to be able to manifest that dream. And those are the companies that I help the best. I say, look, here's the pickaxes and shovels. Go mine for gold. And uh, I'm, I'm just having a hoot. Like it's like my 20 years experience, my grad degrees, my family business, all these things that I have are just dialing in, consolidating to be, oh, wow. Thanks for showing up, Bickerton. This is great. One of our companies, we've already more than doubled a fast run rate. We've doubled the employees during COVID and we're just dominating stuff. That's if you could see, it's just super cool. Uh, and then next steps on that, you'll have to bring me back on to hear what I think the next steps are. <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you so much for joining me, man. You really spent a whole career in startup world, Raider, or is that an investor, is an advisor, the whole nine. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and kind of being able to just jump through all this stuff with us. Hey man, I, I appreciate you having me on here. It was it was really fun to think about how to speak about these things to to a different audience than I normally see. But uh, really, more than anything, I just I'm, I really dig that we got back in touch. Uh, you know, you and I missed paths for a couple of years here, and so it's cool to see you you're thriving. And I can't wait to see your next success. But awesome, man. Hey, talk to you soon, man. Appreciate the time. Thanks, bro. Holding it down.